Hello and welcome to Starting Over with Shannon. This is a podcast about fresh starts, new chapters and embracing change and challenge to become a better version of ourselves and create a better world around us. I'm your host Shannon Jenkins and every week I'll be bringing you a different starting over story with tips on how to conquer life's difficulties to find greater joy, meaning and purpose. Have you ever asked yourself, what is the purpose and meaning of your life? Have you ever wondered whether you have a soul, a soul that has possibly lived a life before this one? Have you ever questioned what happens or where you go after you die? These are some of the themes that we explore on the podcast today with world-renowned neurosurgeon and New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Evan Alexander. After decades as a physician teacher at Harvard Medical School and elsewhere, Dr. Evan thought that he knew how the brain, mind and consciousness worked. That is until he had a life changing, transcendental near death experience during a week long coma. He beat all the odds to return to life and now shares his story of voyaging into the afterlife and the lessons that he learned through that. So on the episode today, he shares his own starting over story, which is pretty significant, I've got to say, as well as some insights into how we can live life better here, right now. Dr. Evan, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Starting Over podcast. Well, Shannon, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on today. So I read one of your early books, Proof of Heaven, last year. And I was accompanying my husband to a book fair in Paris. We were on the outskirts of Paris. There was a chateau and I was on the lawn. And I will forever remember the day that I could not put that book down. I laid there with the sunshine on my face. I had tears streaming down my face because I thought this is just transformational, what you described, the way in which you tell your story, what you have lived through is so remarkable. And I felt something opening in me during that. And I think many people have that very experience too. So thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. And I, I will say that uh, the, the interesting thing to me was after I shared that story in the, in the book published in 2012, uh, I had thousands of people reach out to me and tell me that it echoed with them and reminded them of something their soul had been through, even though they might not have specific memories of it. But it was crystal clear that I had tapped a chord, that a lot of souls uh, kind of had flavors of this kind of experience. And that's really, uh, you know, what the world should be paying attention to. You know, the yes. me before coma, the conventional Harvard uh, neurosurgeon, uh, you know, pretended for a while that you could just dismiss all this and pretend they didn't exist. Well, that's not uh, very smart if you want to get close to the truth. Mm. And getting closer to the truth means, you know, we don't know which data to sweep under the rug, so we shouldn't sweep any data under the rug. Uh, Carl mm. Sagan said something to that effect, basically, uh, that science should never, um, you know, seclude data because you don't know what's leading to truth. And I can tell you... Um, that uh, for those materialist scientists who deny and ignore these experiences, they're simply blocking themselves off from a much deeper and, and kind of profound truth about the nature of existence. So that's where the modern scientific community is really waking up to all this. Uh, and it'll ultimately be a tremendous salvation for humanity to realize that a deeply studied scientific truth like the primacy of consciousness can tell us a lot about who we are, what our purpose is, and how we're all interconnected. So it's a real gift to, to share that kind of thing. Who we are, what our purpose is, and how we are interconnected. That is something I'm going to be coming back to in a moment. But where I want to go is what happened or how your life was before this date in November 2008. What is it that in order for people, the people listening who perhaps aren't familiar with you or your work, what are some of the elements of your life that would help to explain who you were at that time? Well, I had been a very active uh, uh, neurosurgeon. 
uh, although I, I basically bought into the conventional teaching of, of materialist science, which is the physical world is all that exists uh, and that the brain must somehow muster consciousness out of physical matter. And, uh, you know, I, I thought this is our assumption. We just it's called promissory materialism. It was named that by an Australian Nobel Prize laureate, who John C. Eccles, who basically said that uh, all of these hopes and dreams that we would someday discover the material pathways in the brain that explain our spirituality um, was a viable pathway. And yet what we recognize is the brain is not creating consciousness at all. It's serving as a filter transceiver that allows consciousness to present to us. But before my coma, I didn't know that. Uh, I just thought, okay, our existence is birth to death, nothing more. When the brain and body die, that's the end of conscious awareness. And I, and I cannot tell you how shocking it was as a formerly materialist neuroscientist find that is absolutely false. That in fact, our, our brain and body are much more like kind of prisons. We're conscious in spite of our brain. And when we're liberated from that, it's a, an incredible experience to go through. But of course, the me before coma, the card-toting reductive materialist neuroscientist had no way of understanding that. Now, it's important to point out that my adoptive father, who was very important in my life, I mean, he was a globally renowned neurosurgeon. He's the reason I went into medicine and neurosurgery. Um, and he had been in the Second World War as a combat surgeon in the Pacific Theater. I still have his little pocket Bible uh, that had the New Testament and Psalms in it that he carried with him two and a half years while he was in, in the military operating on uh, combat injuries, um, you know, New Guinea, Philippines, on into Japan. And that little Bible and his belief in God, he had a very strong belief in God uh, and in the power of prayer. In fact, he used it daily in his work with patients and healing. Now, me growing up in the 60s and 70s, like a lot of people of that generation, I always knew that science was the pathway to truth. But like so many in our modern society, I had fooled myself into believing conventional Newtonian determinism. And that was the mistake I made. And, and somehow he had kind of uh, leapfrogged beyond me to having this beautiful synthesis of understanding a loving personal God, the power of prayer, and all of modern materialist science. He just knew that ultimately promissory materialism did not work. He sensed that we were deeply spiritual creatures and that God was absolutely real. And so in many ways, he, he was kind of way ahead of me. And I needed to go through this trial of my life and the various issues in my life, including going into coma for a week back in uh, you know, 2008, to really come to an in-depth understanding of the world that in many ways matched my father's uh, abilities back in the 1940s and 50s to know uh, this deeper truth and the reality of God. Uh, I mean, it's important to point out more than 90% of near-death experiencers going back thousands of years across all cultures, and this includes many who were formerly uh, atheists or uh, agnostic, uh, but more than 90% of people who have experienced this uh, come back not only believing, but knowing in the reality of that loving God force that unifies us all at the core of the universe. So that's what I still had to learn through my experience. But luckily, my father had... Uh, figured that out on his own way back in the mid 20th century. Did you get the opportunity to speak with your father about this after your shift in beliefs? Well, my father passed over four years before my coma. So wow. we never got yeah. to share it then. But you know, in, in fact, in our, in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, the third book, uh, which is really the, the sequel to the book Proof of Heaven, um, in that book, I talk about encountering my father's soul in a deep meditation two and a half years after coma. So yes, we've had a chance to share that information, but it had to happen four years after he had left the physical world. Wow. Let's go to this day now in November 2008. What okay. happened, Evan? Well, everything had been going very kind of normally in my life up until uh, that morning. And I woke at 4.30 in the morning, severe back pain, Thought if I could make my way down to a hot bathtub, maybe I could get rid of that. It didn't work at all. The pain got much worse. Almost couldn't get out of the bathtub. Pulled myself up with a towel over a towel rack. Hobbled back to the bed, collapsed, writhing in pain and agony and a cold sweat. Soon thereafter, my uh, younger son, Bond, who was 10 years old at the time, 
came into the room and he realized dad is horribly sick. He started rubbing my temples. As soon as he touched my head, I felt like he'd driven a white hot spike right through my head. It was horrible pain. Uh, wow. And soon thereafter, grand mal seizures and I was deep into coma right there at home. There's, there's a misperception out in the lay world on this and the kind of uh, journalism around my story that pretends that I had, uh, you know, that it was a medication induced coma. Nothing could be further from the truth because as Bruce Grayson, who studied my medical records in great detail and uh, contributed to a medical case report that came out in Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease in September 2018, as he pointed out, I went into coma before any sedation. And when I came out of coma, I was still on heavy sedation. So you can throw it out that that was a medication-induced coma, and it's far more important to the scientific world because they realize that it was a meningitis-induced coma because meningitis has a very specific way of destroying the neocortex and brainstem and all these structures that we think contribute to conscious awareness in a way that makes a severe case of bacterial meningoencephalitis a perfect model for human death because of its... Uh, preferential destruction of those human parts of the brain. And that's where the deep mystery of my coma really lies. If it were all medication induced, you know, it wouldn't hold anywhere near the same information. But this is why hundreds of scientists around the world, physicians, nurses, et cetera, and many physicists and others pay attention to my case because they realize to have that kind of a destructive meningitis and to then have an experience that goes far beyond, uh, you know, any dream or hallucination into this incredible territory of learning, transformation, detailed awareness, and then to have those memories be so persistent that now, almost 15 years later, I remember all those deep spiritual events as if they happened yesterday. That is really Do all really? very remarkable. Yes, absolutely. But you can, it's, it's a vivid memory. It is absolutely crystal clear. And, and interestingly enough, I made the point in the book, Proof of Heaven, that, uh, you know, when I woke up from coma, my brain was still so damaged. That was on day seven. It was a Sunday morning. Um, and as I was coming back to this world, all I knew was where I'd been. All I knew was that seven day or the journey that seemed to last for months or years, but it happened during the seven day coma. That's all I knew. And the memories from before that, all my personal memories took months to go. Well, they most of the personal memories came back over a few days and weeks, uh, but the semantic knowledge all came back over a few months. Uh, but the interesting thing was that I didn't even recognize my mother, my sisters, my sons at the bedside. I had no really? idea who these beings were, and it's because I was amnesic. It's an important part of my story, um, but nobody should worry because amnesia is almost never encountered in NDEs. It was a very unusual feature. But also, all near-death experiences are tailored for the individual soul. And I came to realize over months and years after my coma that, um, that I had to have that amnesia because if I'd had a more standard conventional NDE, for example, if my adoptive father had been there as the spiritual guide, um, I would have been a little more tempted because of my former scientific materialism to try to dismiss it in spite of a one in 10 million diagnosis of E. coli meningitis in an adult, in spite of a one in a billion recovery, if my father had been there, I, I might have been tempted to go, oh, you just see who you want to see on the way out. It's made up, it's imaginary, but no. And people who've read the book Proof of Heaven realize I had a very different guardian angel, this beautiful young woman on that butterfly wing. And uh, she was uh, absolutely crucial to my understanding of it, but I didn't know who she was. When I came back to this world, I had, we'd had this beautiful mind meld during the experience where um, she gave me the most reassuring message deep in the coma as I had ascended up from this, what I call the earthworm's eye view, a very primitive course realm where it all started. But I would, had ascended through this kind of musical portal of light up until this gateway valley, ultra real, much more real than this world. Uh, and that's where I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing. And this beautiful young woman, the spiritual guide, was there to serve, uh, you know, as my spiritual guide, as my guardian angel or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and that was an important step. And yet for months after my coma, I had no idea who that beautiful guardian angel was. 
and as I, I was adopted. Uh, so that was a huge part of the history uh, was my adoption wound, the abandonment of being left behind by my birth mother. Uh, and I'd spent much of my life with this kind of subconscious you know, challenge or doubt as to whether or not I was worthy of love. And that's why the NDE in many ways brought all of that kind of questioning and doubt and kind of mystery of uh, being uh, put up for adoption, uh, being in a baby dorm basically for four months before I was adopted because my birth mother was not willing to sign the papers to let me go, but social services would not let her take me back. So I was in this kind of limbo state, but it was really uh, her identity uh, which I found out four months post-coma that allowed me to connect all the dots and start going, oh my God. And that was the real shocker of it all. Um, uh, but wow. there's a tremendous amount more to that deep coma story. Well, so let's scoot back a little bit. So you had this experience at home, you were taken into hospital where you were in fact working and then your colleagues realized, oh my goodness, this is Dr. Evan Alexander. What do we do? But what happened to you and your consciousness during that? As you really describe here, the experience of leaving your body and where okay, you went. Well, again, to stress amnesia, I had no memories of my life before. And in fact, I've really don't know of other uh, NDE cases where that occurs. So it's that rare. Some people worry about that. They don't want to go into this situation amnesic. And I can assure you, most people don't. But for my journey, it was very important for me to understand things. But what I first witnessed was what I call the earthworm eye view. And again, I had absolutely no memory of my life, knowledge of humans, of earth, of this universe. It was a complete empty slate. And I think that was absolutely crucial for some of the deepest and most important lessons I was to learn. But in that earthworm eye view, it was it sounds kind of dark and foreboding when I describe it. But because of my it amnesia, sounds like a strange word, I've got to say. Yeah, but it, because of my amnesia, I accepted it. This is existence. And I was fine with it. I was just going with it. Uh, but the good news is it didn't last forever. Uh, and after what must have seemed like an eternity because I couldn't remember moment to moment anything going on. Uh, Were you in pain? Came, sorry? Were you in pain? Not, No, not at that point. That's a very interesting uh, issue here, because I believe this is kind of a universal indicator of why we can have a world with a predator-prey situation. All these animals out there, animals eating animals, you know, why would a God create a world where that kind of pain and suffering was so built into it but I believe what, what I experienced is just an example. And of course, I've heard of many other NDEs similarly, where when you're in that spiritual realm, there is no longer in the, any of the physical pain of being in the body. You know, you are relieved of that very, very rapidly. And I think that's kind of a universal situation that is what allows uh, for, for the predator prey environment uh, to exist and still be in this kind of loving world of an infinitely loving God force as a creative source. So I was not in any pain. Um, but the interesting thing is that melody uh, that came with the white light that opened up and led up like a light portal and led me out of that earthworm white view up into this brilliant ultra real gateway valley. And the thing that's so crucial to stress there is that realm is much more real, detailed, memorable, transformational than anything I'd ever experienced in my material body and, and my consciousness living in this material body. It's astonishing. Uh, and, and how most, difficult is that to grasp? You know, for the average person, I think, you know, we've watched movies, we've seen this idea that you die, you you lift out of your body, you're drawn to, through a dark tunnel towards a light, you look at it, you feel compelled to go in that direction. We've We've heard those stories. And yet people must be thinking, what, really, how? Well, more than, more than half of near-death experiencers will say that that world is much more real than this one. And I'll give you an example of why that is so. Do recall that uh, somewhere between 25 to 50% of near-death experiencers have what's called a life review. Um, and the life review is interesting uh, because uh, it is... Uh, going through the main events of your life that still hold residual uh, abilities for teaching and learning, uh, but doing it, you're actually reliving the events, not just remembering them. That's a crucial thing to get. So imagine reliving the, the main events of your life, birth to death, 
everything in between, and even glimpsing past lives and future lives in that spiritual environment, it's completely outside of, of our normal narrative of time flow on Earth in a storybook fashion. Uh, this is wh when you're in a situation where your mind has been so elevated above its normal state that you can experience all these facets of your life simultaneously. And not only that, one of the cardinal features in 74% of near-death experiences, according to a recent paper by Bruce Grayson, who's an MD who's studied these as a skeptical uh, medical scientist for more than 45 years, uh, and it's uh, something like 74% describe uh, the life review as experiencing the events from everyone's perspective. So if you were busy handing out pain and suffering to others, you feel that coming at you. That's why life reviews serve as a kind of a course correction. It's like the golden rule is written into the fabric of the universe. Treat others as you would like to be treated. Because in that life review, the goodness you've handed out and the badness you've handed out come back to you. You feel that as the targets of those issues in your uh, life had felt them. So in other words, the life review is kind of like we share the dream of the one mind and you see it from all perspectives. And it just teaches us to treat others with love, respect, and kindness. That is ultimately the, the deepest lesson of life reviews. Wow. How confronting. So this is what we would hear as life flashing before your eyes. Right. It, exactly. it is that in some essence? It is exactly that. Now, it's important to point out, because of my amnesia, I could not have an Eben Alexander life review, okay? Because the amnesia was there for a big reason that would ultimately lead to my recognizing the reality of the experience. But what I did witness is, uh, and I have to kind of continue my story here, that Gateway Valley, I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing. That was this, this ultra real stage I had gotten to uh, coming up out of the earthworm's eye view, the Gateway Valley. Uh, lots of earthly features, but also like Plato's world of ideals. It was a world of perfection. Uh, I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing, millions of other butterflies looping and spiraling in these vast formations. And this beautiful guardian angel that I've already mentioned was beside me on the butterfly wing. And it was her mind meld with me. The thoughts that I wrote down later, because it was pure conceptual flow and with deep emotional overlay when it came from her. Uh, and that was the message, you are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You are deeply cared for. And she also said, as I put it in the book, Proof of Heaven, in that moment, you can do no wrong. And I wish I had explained that much better because to me at that point, I had already witnessed this ocean of love, of that uh, beautiful loving God force that I'd experienced as this perfect summer breeze that blew through and showed me that presence of that loving force. And so to go through uh, uh, every bit of that um, you know, it was just an uh, astonishing feature. But what it showed me was that my very conscious awareness was sourced uh, in that God force. And this is something I recognize as we went deeper. But that God force and the love and the ambience, that's why uh, that life review is so important. But what I witnessed was as I ascended from that level up into what's called the core realm. And so all of four-dimensional space-time collapsing down, all of of the spiritual realm, this gateway valley and all of its beauty and kind of earthly features, but also spiritual uh, enlightenment because of the swooping orbs of angelic uh, angels up above, emanating chants and anthems and hymns. These were just thundering through my awareness. And that was the environment in which I was told you can do no wrong. But what it really meant to me in that moment was we love each other ideally uh, unconditional love is the rule, kindness, compassion, mercy, acceptance. And so uh, we have the free will choice to do otherwise, but it only gives us a far more difficult and arduous pathway. Uh, the most uh, efficient pathway forward as evolving souls is really to come to that recognition early on of the oneness of connection, of the binding force of love, how we're all in this together. Uh, and what I witnessed in that journey was then all of the beauty of that gateway valley realm with the butterflies and the beautiful meadow, thousands of beings dancing below. Uh, I call them souls between lives. I remember seeing pets there, for example, dogs jumping and 
children playing, incredible festivities, all being fueled because of those angelic choirs and those chants, anthems, and hymns. But then what happened is all of that collapsed down. Now, the important concept to mention here is something I call deep time or meta time. And that is that that realm is so elevated out of our normal sense of earthly time flow that you can witness your whole life. Uh, And that's where this notion of uh, ineffability or the the difficulty in describing this, the ultra reality is so important to get Uh, because when you're, you can experience all of your life at once, you see all these connections in much deeper and richer fashion that help you to understand your higher soul journey. And that's what I was uh, witnessing from this, this uh, beautiful journey and, and uh, that part of it. But as I ascended, all of that collapsed down until I entered what I call the core realm. And that was kind of as far as I went. The core was a resolution of all dualities, you know, masculine, feminine, dark, light, uh, good, evil, et cetera. Every bit of it comes together into oneness uh, in that core realm. And, that, and for me at that point, uh, I, I was basically the awareness of the universe uh, and the entire uh, multiverse throughout all of history all of eternity was there as this complex oversphere for these teaching lessons. Uh, and the good news is that's where I witnessed uh, what I call two visions, flying fish, but the one I'll focus on is the Ender's net vision. And that's what showed me life reviews, reincarnation, every bit of it as this interwoven tapestry of our soul lines, all progressing told us towards this golden center of, of God consciousness. And that's what this whole process is all about. And then I would tumble back down from that core realm. But the interesting thing is, especially in that Indra's net vision, I realized how important the life reviews were, and, and especially as serving as course corrections to help all of us in our working towards the evolution of all of consciousness. Because I think that's what this is absolutely about, is the evolution of consciousness throughout the universe. And once you realize that we're sharing the mind of the universe, and that mind is the creative source behind all that exists in physical reality, that's when we start to see the true power of that mental realm of our consciousness. But we must move beyond the ego level of consciousness, which is very toxic, narcissistic, damaged, and which actually just uh, creates a foil by which our higher soul can start to emerge to reveal this oneness that we all share and that binding force of love. Okay, there's a lot there to break down. And I think for people who are not familiar with this, that we would think it is so difficult to even grasp the idea of what you're experiencing. And and clearly, I mean, you've even stated that yourself in your book of how to give words to your experience, how to describe it, when in, in some ways you say it's beyond what words can describe, right? But what I want to ask is, you say that your brain was effectively off during this period while you're in a coma. Is that correct to say? Well, yeah. I mean, my you know, neuroscience would tell you that every bit of the detail of your conscious awareness, everything you see, everything you hear, everything you smell, touch, body position, interpretation of your surrounding environment, memory of past events, executive function, projection of future events, every single bit of it without exception is due to the advanced calculations performed in the neocortex. The neocortex is a six cell layer. It's the, the rind of the brain. It's the outer surface. It's the part you can see when you look at a brain from externally. That entire external layer is very critical for all the details of conscious awareness in a human being. Every bit of it depends on that neocortex. So meningitis is a perfect model for human death because it preferentially attacks that entire neocortex. In fact, my meningitis was even affecting my brainstem, you know, which is a much more primitive part of the brain very early on. But my entire neocortex was involved. You can see that from CT and MRI scans. That's why that medical case report, it came out in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease in September 2018 by Dr. Serbi Khanna, Lauren Moore, and Bruce Grayson. That case report is absolutely essential to understand this. They go much further than I did with the medical details of proof of heaven. And they make the case that my brain was in absolutely no shape to harbor any kind of dream or hallucination 
much less the most profound, detailed, memorable, transformational set of events of my entire existence. How could all of that happen, especially when my brain was demonstrably offline? They go well, through exactly. all the med medical details, uh, including my Glasgow coma scales. You know, and you or me, a Glas GCS, Glasgow coma scale, would be 15. In a corpse, they get a three. Uh, anything below nine is deep coma. And through most of that week, uh, I was six or seven. Sometimes I was probably as low as a five. Uh, so a very deep coma uh, and one where CT and MRI scan showed all lobes of my brain affected. So there was no place for any kind of conscious experience to occur. Um, and of course, initially when I first you know, woke up, was trying to make sense of this, when my neuroscience knowledge was still returning over about two months, you know, it was a deep mystery. And my doctors had told me, you know, we have no idea how you're coming back to us. They had estimated I had gone from a 10% chance of survival early in the week down to a 2% chance of survival by that day seven when I actually started waking up. Wow. But that 2% survival chance did not include any realistic chance for recovery of quality of life. That's why the doctors were recommending stop the antibiotics, take him off the ventilator. You know, there's no hope for meaningful recovery. And I started waking up hours later, but of course my brain still appeared very, very damaged because I wasn't even recognizing my mother's, you know, sons, sisters, et cetera. Uh, but that recovery was very rapid, literally over hours and days. Personal memories and language returned uh, a lot. And then all my semantic knowledge took about two months. But my doctors, when I tried to tell them the spiritual experience, they would pat me on the back and say, well, your brain was soaking in pus. In fact, we have no idea yes. how you're coming back to us now, but you can forget about it because the dying brain plays all kinds of tricks. So I thought, okay, it was a trick. And when my, I remember my older son, Evan IV, who was majoring in neuroscience in college at the time, he'd been there at the bedside when I was deep in coma, knew how badly ill I was. But he also had gone back to school after I was starting to come out of it all. And then he came home two days after I got out of the hospital, uh, drove overnight because he heard I wasn't sleeping at all because I was so energized by the experience. And uh, he got there at 6 a.m. He gave me a big hug. And he told me later it was like there was a light shining within me that I was far more present than I'd ever been before. But what I told him, I said, Evan, it was way too real to be real. And, you know, that kind of mad statement was especially as it came to light, just how bad off my brain was with the entire neocortex offline. The brainstem badly damaged. My oculocardiac reflex was gone. I mean, that is a, a very deep level of brainstem damage, which usually associates with death. So how in the world was all this happening? But early on, I believe my doctors, it had to be a vast hallucination. But that's before I started going through my medical record, the scans, talking over with my doctors. In fact, I have that conversation with one of my neurologists in the book, Living in a Mindful Universe, where he admitted that there was absolutely no medical explanation for what I'd been through. And important to point out, in that medical case report, when the three doctors who wrote it were not involved in my care, but were fascinated by my recovery. And when the peer review editors of the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases challenged them and said, well, this case is unprecedented. You don't have people this sick from bacterial uh, meningitis who then spent a week in uh, coma and then make a full recovery. How do you explain it? And the doctors who wrote the case report said, it's because he had a near-death experience. That's what allowed this absolutely unprecedented healing to happen. And it's because they and those peer review editors knew of other similar cases of near-death experiences that were associated with absolutely miraculous healing, miraculous from our kind of Western medical viewpoint, but uh, not miraculous when you consider the power of mind over matter and the fact that we all have a tremendous ability to influence our wholeness and healing as we come to acknowledge the power of mind over matter, use meditation and centering prayer to bring health and healing to ourselves and others. Uh, so for me, uh, you know, it was an extraordinary few months of going to the hospital, reviewing those records, trying to make sense of it. Now, the other important case uh, made by the doctors who wrote the case report is not only, you know, that I, I, my brain was in absolutely no shape to have any kind of phenomenal experience, much less what I did have. They also pointed out that that recovery uh, was, was uh, due to the spiritual journey. 
And that's where I think more of us should pay a lot of attention to what is going on here because it teaches us about healing and wholeness and love and coming into our higher soul perspective and transcending that little ego mind. You know, so, so many people think that they identify with that voice in their head. I love how Michael yes. Singer in his book, The Untethered Soul, he calls the voice in your head, your annoying roommate. And that voice in your head is not your consciousness. Your consciousness is aware of that voice, but it's the awareness that is the profound mystery. And we're really sharing the self-awareness of the universe. And our brain is only a filter that allows that primordial consciousness in. But ultimately, we're working with that shared mind. And that is a, a beautiful recognition and realization from the modern science, quantum-informed science of consciousness. I do love Michael Singer and I regularly speak on him on this podcast. And I did actually write down a quote because from the un Untethered Soul, interestingly enough, because he has a chapter about the importance of contemplating death as a way of living well. And he said, it's truly a great cosmic paradox that one of the best teachers in all of life turns out to be death. No person or situation could ever teach you as much as death can show you. While somebody could tell you that you are not your body, death shows you or while somebody could remind you of the insignificance of things you cling to death takes them all away in a second and the question is he says are you going to wait until that last moment to let death be your teacher well i i agree with michael singer on every one of those points and have a lot of ways i'd expand on it so would you like yeah, to expand on it yeah absolutely um in fact you know it's it, it might seem paradoxical or unusual that death is such a teacher until you realize that reincarnation is absolutely real. Our souls have been here many times before. It's a process. I look at kind of incarnation and then between lives, incarnation between lives, almost like breathing. And then it starts to make much more sense. And it doesn't look so paradoxical that death would be this mysterious, weird teacher that appears at the end of your existence. And it's because it is not the end of your existence. Because all of us have been here before. There is a pro process of programmed forgetting, um, as I call it, which means that even though young children will often have memories of past lives, by age six or seven, those memories are covered over by natural processes. So most of us, as teenagers and adults, we think of reincarnation and we go, well, no, I don't have memories of that, so it can't be real. And yet, the scientific literature on reincarnation is extremely powerful. And to ignore it, do so at your peril. But go to uvadops.org, University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies. That's one uh, source. But they have been studying past life memories in children for more than six decades. Their database now has more than 2,700 cases. And of those, 1,700 are what they call solved. That is, they actually found the person existed who the child is describing. The child might remember you know, where they lived, uh, certain events, certain names, things like that. And then the researchers would take that data and then find out, yes, my gosh, this person actually existed that this two and a half or three-year-old child is describing, even though the child has no other way of knowing that knowledge. Now, what those doctors who study those children will tell you is you must harvest the memories before age six or seven. In fact, there's some very famous cases, for example, uh, one that's involved in the book uh, Soul Survivor, S-O-U-L Survivor, which is about a World War II fighter pilot who was, was killed in March of 1945, reincarnated 50-some-odd uh, years later in 1998. Um, uh, in, he was born, I think, in April. Uh, and uh, incredible story. Just go read it. It was vetted by Jim Tuck, Tucker, who's one of the investigators at University of Virginia. Um, and yet that child who had such incredible detailed memories uh, of uh, his life before as that fighter pilot, when, when he passed age six or seven, those memories started disappearing. And now he has very little actual memory of it other than recordings of the conversations. But those memories disappear. It's called program forgetting. That's what I believe gives us skin in the game, at least at this level of human development. Um, people, what do you mean by that, skin in the game? In other words, we care about this. If you had all the knowledge of your higher soul, knew completely the eternity of soul and your pattern of soul growth, you, you could just uh, kind of, you, you would basically rise above so many of the lesson, lessons that many of us have in this life to help us get to that level. All of humanity is not there yet. So because it's a very kind of 
uh, fragmented uh, progress that we share in the spiritual growth. Uh, this is still kind of a rule, having this program forgetting, although I believe some souls get so advanced that, of course, those memories come through into the next life and the next life, and they recognize that they've had previous lives. But most of us are not really aware of that as teenagers and adults. We don't have those same memories. And yet, uh, when you dive into that literature of Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker, University of Virginia, that's one resource, Carol Bowman, uh, Jim Matlock, or other investigators. But the evidence is crystal clear. If, if um, you, know, you don't accept reincarnation, that our souls come back again and again. And I think the way to interpret this is to see it that, yes, our, we are part of one consciousness, of one mind. That's the point we make in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. That's a point Larry Dossie makes in his book called One Mind. Uh, beautiful examples are given in both those books. <clears throat> but what it uh, uh, really is teaching us is that although our souls between lives dive back into that ocean of oneness, and that's where you have life reviews, you know, reunite with souls of departed loved ones, plan next incarnations, all that kind of thing. This is where uh, you were, like you in your experience during your coma, this is where you went. So when you're talking about this, your belief in reincarnation or life review or soul's purpose, the lessons we need to learn, that is because of what you experienced during that time. It is, but I also had to have that amnesia to buy into it all. And, and, and there are various reasons I discuss in both books about why that was. You know, why was it that my father's soul, for example, he passed over four years before my coma, but he appeared to me in meditation two and a half years after my coma to help me come to a deeper understanding of why I had that particular guardian angel and all the other features of it. But I think this, this notion of skin in the game makes a lot of sense. That, that program forgetting is there so that we kind of buy into this one incarnation and in that setting to recover that sense of love and kindness and compassion means a lot more to us and helps us in the growth of our soul. Mm. Let's go to this in terms of the life lessons, because a couple of angles I want to take is one, are there things that we worry about, commonly worry about, I will say that from your experience, you'd say that that actually doesn't matter. And then secondly, what are some of the key lessons that we could distill from your experience to know how to live better now in this life here? Well, I think what, what we learn basically in an NDE, because the vast majority of near-death experiencers come back with this knowing. And that, that knowing is that we are all sharing that one mind. We're connected through the binding force of love. That God force is, is very real. I saw in the core realm, you know, the deepest I went on my journey, that that God force was actually the source of our very awareness of and that was a very important lesson. But it all becomes much simpler when you just realize that we're all really in this together. To hurt another is to hurt ourselves. And so the main lesson humanity is to learn at this point is really this one of love and of kindness, compassion, that golden rule. Treat others as you would like to be treated. And the importance of getting this early in your life and not waiting until you're on your deathbed is because every bit of living our lives has to do with soul growth, with evolution as a soul, so that the way we treat ourselves and understand our relationship with the universe, the way we treat other people, all of this is kind of the soul growth and soul lesson that is the very reason we exist. And so to have that knowledge, especially you know at a younger age, this is one reason why I love getting my message out to young children, to high school and college students, et cetera, is because then they don't have to waste their life with a lot of ego-centric, ego-focused issues. So much of our society is just intoxicated by ego and the kind of narcissistic, self-focused behavior. And that is uh, basically a dead end when it comes to spiritual growth. And any kind of growth as a soul comes from this much grander recognition of who we are as these eternal spiritual beings that are all interconnected with each other and with the very purpose of existence of the universe. I'd rather know that kind of thing much earlier in my life to enable me to make every choice uh, and the way I deal with all of my fellow beings reflect that higher knowledge and not be sucker punched 
well, the egocentric toxicity that is so prominent in our modern culture. So are there common worries that people have that in the grand scheme of things don't really matter? I would say that the vast majority of it doesn't matter other than manifesting love, compassion, kindness for yourself and for others. And that is not a form of egocentrism or narcissism. It's a form of higher soul taking responsibility and acknowledging a much deeper role that you have in living your life. So every bit of it involves living from that position of unconditional love for fellow beings to the full extent possible and uh, really living this life to try and discover more about the power of that oneness and, and demonstrating that by serving as a channel for this love, a conduit for this love, for that universal, infinitely loving God force, uh, and sharing that, first of all, acknowledging it in the self. Because after my coma, I realized that so many of our problems are not because we don't love our enemy enough or love our neighbor enough. It's that we don't even love ourselves enough. Yes, that's... And divine beings that we are. And that yeah. recognition was very powerful. But we, we, we honor that by serving as a conduit for that love, and it reflects in how we treat our fellow beings. So there's a tremendous amount of growth that we can do beyond the little ego. And in meditation, what I always do is I let Evan Alexander's little ego voice ask a question, state a request, an intention, what have you, at the very beginning of the meditation. But then I've learned to ride those sacred acoustics tones, get into a deep transcendental state, uh, where I am participating with the one mind of the universe. Um, and I cannot tell you how uh, refreshing and kind of invigorating that is. And if all you're looking for is relief of anxiety in our very anxious modern world, there's a peer-reviewed scientific study of sacred acoustics, binaural beat brainwave entrainment in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease, published by Dr. Anna Yusim, Y-U-S-I-M, a psychiatrist in Manhattan, on her experience, and she found that by using sacred acoustics tones in a very anxious population, that over two weeks, 26% reduction in anxiety symptoms compared to only 7% in patients who had had standard conventional talk therapy, but none of the sacred acoustics tones. But I can tell you, sacred acoustics can do far more than just, quote, relieve anxiety. In fact, I would say the whole reason it's doing that is by allowing you to put your ego into timeout and then let your higher soul take over and reassure you for this is all going in the right direction. Just keep love loving that. and living. Put ego in timeout. I think yeah. I need to do that a lot more frequently, Evan. <laughs> well, you know, and, and you become much more comfortable with your higher soul. And your higher soul is much more comfortable just helping other people and, and reaping the benefits of working for the higher good. You know, the little ego mind, it has its purpose but it's not necessarily your friend in these kinds of spiritual journeys and in the growth of the soul. So I guess this goes without saying, but do you think that there is an incompatibility between our soul's purpose on earth versus our Western societal norms of what success is and of what a life well-lived is? No, I think that there are people who demonstrate a well-lived life in our society. Those people are very altruistic. They're very philanthropic. They give, and it fits perfectly. They, some of them can be very successful in our, our modern kind of context. But remember, it always is about helping others and being of service to the world at large. And that is not at all incompatible with success in our modern world. When you start getting the profit motive and, and dollars being more valuable than people's welfare, that's when a company's really tipped over the deep end. And yeah, they might be financially successful. I think ultimately they won't do well. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of greed in the corporate world. And when the almighty dollar, you know, has taken over power, that's when you know you're in deep trouble. But I'm also very optimistic about where the world is headed. But that optimism is not based in the kind of status quo of where the headlines and the conflicts and the warfare and the corporate greed and the climate change you know, and all that are going. But that's where our higher soul and uh, basically the higher souls of all of us contributing to the growth of humanity is absolutely essential. 
And no, it does not involve the profit motive for the oil industry and things like that. Those mm -hmm. are all dead ends. Those are, are planet killers, human killers. Uh, and climate change is absolutely rock solid real. Anybody who doesn't get that human caused climate change is threatening a million species with extinction needs to do their homework. And it is high time we woke up. In fact, I think this entire awakening, this revolution in the quantum informed science of consciousness is one that ultimately is absolutely essential for humanity and for this planet to survive, you know, another century. During your experience, was there anything that made you believe in a, in a universal purpose that we all have during our life here? For people, because it seems to be an intrinsic question that many of us pose at different periods of our life where we go, well, what, why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? And we're frequently seeking to derive meaning from our life. Well, I would say the simplest answer is that we're here to help others and to be of service to the world and to make the world a better place. It really is that simple. And if we're slave to the ego and trying to satisfy the needs of our ego, that can be very, very dissatisfying. And of course, we all find that out at the time we die. When we realize that we're spiritual beings, when souls of departed loved ones come to welcome us to that incredible celebration of our life through the life review and every bit of that, and then planning next incarnations. And I think all of that, uh, all I can comment on is where I think humanity in this current 5,000-year epoch is headed. I don't think we can envision, you know, the, the million year from now, the destiny of, of, of sentient beings like Homo sapiens if we're around, you know, in the far distant future. But for, from the current level of, of, of understanding, the big lesson for humanity to learn is the oneness, the binding force of love, how we're all this together. And it's not just about humans. It's also how we treat our fellow uh, animals. They're sentient. Uh, you know, it's, we have to credit Rene Descartes for leading science down a false cul-de-sac of believing that animals were just machines that had no feelings yeah. or conscious awareness. Thank you, Rene, you were wrong. Uh, and I think most of us <laughs> today realize animals can have a very rich spiritual awareness. In fact, they're lucky they don't have that little ego mind, not in the same sense we do, to try and talk them out of what their higher soul is trying to teach them. I guess I want to come overarchingly to this idea that you have elaborated on about distinguishing between our ego and our higher self and the lessons that we can derive from that to live a more fulfilling life. Because I guess what you're saying through this is that when we are less identified with our ego and its wishes and desires and expectations of our life, we will naturally be more satisfied and fulfilled. Right. And yet... Absolutely. And yet in practical terms, and I really want to draw this down to the practical, obviously we all live a different type of life, but what are some of the choices that people could make in their daily life to live a, a, a life that's more aligned with their higher self? Well, for one thing, I think that daily meditation is pretty important because you need relief from the kind of dominance of the ego mind. Uh, and do remember that, for example, addictions, addictions of all sorts, addictions to various substances, addiction to sex, addiction to love, addiction to work, addiction to exercise, <clears throat> these all are kind of ego-driven, and they, they don't work in our best interest. And so, you know, through meditation and through kind of uh, discerning this primordial mind and the shared common good, um, in distinction to that little ego mind and its kind of toxicities that often result in, in fear and anxiety. I mean, that's what the ego uses as its tools. Uh, and that's really no great way to live your life in a pleasant fashion with a sense of accomplishment to be in fear and anxiety all the time. Uh, so it's really, uh, I think, kind of a natural process to come to identify more with that primordial mind and more with our higher soul. Higher soul is not something that really belongs to us. It's not owned by us. It's really connected with higher souls of our fellow beings. And the more we come to kind of dwell in that, and this is where I think the daily meditation is so important, because as we point out, living in a mindful universe, uh, our emergent reality is deeply reflective of our faults, beliefs, and attitudes. This is something medical scientists have known for at least 60 years. You know, placebo mm -hmm. effect is a... a you know, a great example of that. 
And people misunderstand placebo effect. It really is showing us more the power of mind over matter to cure and heal ourselves of all kinds of, uh, of afflictions and uh, diseases and what have you. And then you can move beyond placebo effect to spontaneous remission. We actually had Dr. Jeffrey Rediger on the podcast from Harvard, who wrote oh, a book called Cured on the, the Nature of Spontaneous Remissions. Well, that excellent. And then, of course, you've got that whole category of spontaneous uh, or miraculous healing and near-death experiences, which, to my mind, is kind of the highest form of that mind over matter in terms of healing and wholeness. Uh, like my case, Anita Morjani, who cured her stage four uh, lymphoma, and also Dr. Mary C. Neal, who had a near-death experience, and basically an over 30-minute warm water drowning. She was pulled to the surface dead. They resuscitated her, but she'd had a profound near-death experience, which enabled this complete healing for her you know, after the illness. So this is why, you know, these miraculous healings and NDEs uh, are probably the tip of the spear in teaching people, let's pay attention to what is possible in terms of higher uh, kind of healing and kind of spiritual engagement with ourselves to bring wholeness and healing to our lives. I'm going to move into the final few questions now, Dr. Eben. And I first wanted to ask you, what is, do you have any advice for individuals who are really searching for meaning and purpose in their life in the context of current adversity? The main context is to help others. It really is that darn simple, <laughs> you know, to, uh, to... Even even when somebody is currently in a really difficult place themselves, are you saying that in that moment they could say, it is better for me to see how I could help somebody else in this situation? Well, let's put it this way. Th that... Overall, yes, focusing on helping the world and the higher good is always uh, valuable. But the other thing to realize, you know, one of the things I often say is all is well. And I say that in the context of understanding that comes with this broader mindset uh, where no matter what the challenge is, you begin to realize, especially with a regular program of meditation. I mean, I use meditation every day to help me address any of the perceived hardships I'm having in the moment of that day. So meditation for me is a very practical tool, but it enables me to engage with kind of that higher soul and that broader perspective of, of, of it's basically like using a life review to kind of check yourself out with everything going on in your life in that moment and that day. For me, meditation serves that purpose beautifully by getting my ego mind out of the way. And uh, I ultimately come away, in, for the most part, concluding that all is well. So those hardships, those challenges, those difficulties, all those things that you're hinting at, that all of us suffer from and struggle with, <laughs> yeah. I'm simply saying that a regular program of meditation, of connecting with higher soul, is a way of kind of building up your spiritual currency to a point where those little vexing, you know, kind of ego challenging issues of hardships uh, are not as bad as they seem. And this mm. then expands, for example, to losing a loved one, losing a child. You know, I've done a lot of work with Forever Family Foundation, which is all about helping people who have lost a young, uh, lost a child. And to me, I can't imagine a worse challenge and yet what I've come to realize is that when, when I, I work with people in those kinds of settings uh, and, and, and help to usher them into a world of meditation and an open-mindedness and educate them about things like reincarnation, after-death communications, deathbed visions, end-of-life uh, dreams and visions, uh, once you realize that, for example, the hospice literature of people who actually die completely reflects the stories told in near-death experiences. So that old business of, well, you didn't die, so you can't tell us what happens when you die. Well, guess what? Christopher Kerr, in his book, uh, Death is But a Dream, is all about hospice and terminal care. He doesn't care about near-death experiences. And yet what he writes about their reunions with loved ones who have already died and how comforting that is and what they go through in the dying process that is so comforting and brings their whole life into focus and makes it meaningful so that most of them are dying with a smile on their face, then you start to realize the big power of all is well, adopting the identity of higher soul and connectedness with our fellow loved ones 
and realize that no matter how great the challenge we face in this world in our personal existence, that by connecting more and living daily as this higher soul and not as your little petty ego mind uh, is tremendously valuable at enriching and fulfilling your life. So I'm not just talking about the little problems. I'm talking about really big, gigantic problems. And all of that can be incorporated into an understanding of all is well and an acceptance as we come to recognize ourselves as those higher spiritual beings. And it is something that involves beliefs, thoughts, and attitudes, but all of us have power over our beliefs, thoughts, and attitudes. And we can choose the higher good and the focus on, on love, compassion, kindness, mercy, acceptance, when necessary, forgiveness. And this is what enables us to greatly enrich our lives. Mm, beautiful. And lastly here, I suspect like many people who have had near-death experiences, they say that their fear of death has dramatically reduced. Aligned with that, what about, do you have any fears of living or fears of suffering or fears of not living your life well here? Well, I would say the suffering thing is something I'd like to avoid somewhat. I mean, suffering is part of life, <clears throat> but you know, physical pain and suffering, I'm trained as a physician to try and help people. Excuse me. <coughs> to, try, to try and help people uh, you know, with physical suffering and pain. And so uh, you know, that's not something that I like to just exist rampant in this world. But in terms of fear of death, no, there is no fear of death. I realize fear, death is actually liberation from the prison. For those who worry about annihilation, that's not what happens. You, you actually, your higher soul takes over and whoosh, it's a much different experience. That's what indie ears have been telling us forever. Now, for your audience who might have trouble believing in the reality of the afterlife, yeah. very important to point out, go to bigelowinstitute.org. You'll find 28 essays written in the year 2021 by 28 uh, by groups of 28 you know 28 groups of scientists who wrote these papers um, and it was an invitation by Robert Bigelow an aerospace engineer in Las Vegas who had lost his wife his son had committed suicide he wanted to know more about where they were were they still really around or not uh, and he challenged the scientific community you had to demonstrate at least 5 years of rigorous research experience to even submit an essay in that setting, they were going to give out three monetary awards. They ended up giving out 28 because the papers were so good. And those papers wow. are available for free to the reading public right now. And I promise you, start reading these papers. You will never doubt the reality of the afterlife and of reincarnation again. Uh, start reading with Jeffrey Mishlaw's first place essay. If you ins insist on hardcore science, go to Bernardo Kastrup and his essay, Pim Van Lommel and his essay with the one second place prize, or Julie Beischel. She writes an excellent scientifically-based uh, paper on, on, uh, uh, on spiritual mediumship. Uh, and once you start reading these, uh, these uh, papers, you'll realize afterlife is absolutely real. There's a tremendous amount to reincarnation. Uh, you know, our modern science can claim it doesn't exist, but that's only because they are uh, proclaiming willful ignorance. That is, they haven't bothered to read any of those 28 winning essays at BigelowInstitute.org. But luckily, those are available to all of your audience and to the world at large for free. So go there and start reading, and you'll realize exactly what I'm talking about. This revolution in the quantum-informed science of consciousness is going to shift humanity into a far more uh, favorable, prosperous, and harmonious mode. Dr. Evan, thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing your fountain of knowledge, which we can all see here. I think we're all going to be taking notes on all of the links and so on that you've provided with us. But I feel more confident in the journey of letting go of suffering and the little ego mind problems than the little fears and the little anxieties that we carry around, which you recognize are just all is well, as you say, in fact. All is well, indeed. And people can keep up with me at evanalexander.com, uh, learn more about the meditation at sacredacoustics.com. And the other site I recommend is innersanctumcenter.com, I-N-N-E-R, sanctumcenter.com. 
people can go there, they'll find out what I mean, but that uh, there are a lot of offerings there that help to expand your knowledge of all of this. Mm, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Shannon. Great talking with you today. Take care. And thank you to all of you listening. I hope you found this episode inspiring, helpful, and thought-provoking. And just a final word from me, high praise to you all for continuously choosing healing, self-awareness, and growth. I totally believe in your ability to make change, surmount challenges, and build a life worth dreaming about. Thank you.